When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Christian, how's it going, man? Oh man, yeah, what a day. What a day. Breaking news on the financial markets right now. Stocks around the globe have tanked due to concerns over the coronavirus. The Dow falling a record 2,000 points. A conflict among major oil-producing nations has sparked a crash in oil prices. They collapsed 31.5% at the start of trading. This plunge is remarkable, folks. It was on reports that Saudi Arabia slashing prices and increasing supply. This after talks with Russia collapsed. The world's top oil producers agreeing to cut nearly 10 million barrels a day, a tenth of the global supply. The situation in West Texas tonight is dire. The price of oil continues to fall and industry experts warn that it could be months before we see any kind of relief. On March 8th, one week after the first confirmed U.S. death from the coronavirus and three days before the World Health Organization declared the outbreak a pandemic, Saudi Arabia and Russia went to war over the price of oil. The Russians vowed to pump more of their oil into the market, and the Saudis retaliated by slashing their prices. The global market was already awash with cheap crude, in large part because China, the world's largest importer of oil, had come to a standstill. Other countries around the world were beginning to issue travel bans and stay-at-home orders, meaning the demand for fuel was rapidly decreasing. When the stock markets opened on Monday, March 9th, the price of crude plummeted 30%. It was the largest single-day drop since the Gulf War in 1991. Overnight, the mighty shell boom in the Permian Basin of West Texas and southeastern New Mexico evaporated into thin air. Prices had hovered around $50 a barrel. Now they lingered around 20 bucks. It looked like things couldn't get any worse. But then something unprecedented happened. On Monday, April 20th, the price per barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude went negative for the first time in history. I'm Christian Wallace, and this is a special bonus episode of Boomtown. Our first 11 episodes documented the boom that made the U.S. the world's largest producer of crude oil. Today, we take a look at how the biggest boom the Permian Basin has ever experienced suddenly turned into a historic bust. This is the one-two punch. Crazy day, my, my, uh, you know, over the past couple of weeks, my kids have been saying, hey, you know, I tell them what the price of oil is, and they go, is that the lowest you've ever seen it, Dad? And I'm like, no, back in 1985, I remember from uh, Exxon on a property I had in Winkler County, Paid me eight dollars and sixty cents, and now I'm going to remember this forever. That it was negative thirty-four dollars. On April twentieth, when the price of oil went negative for the first time in history, I called Midland Oilman David Arrington. 
As you might recall from episode 3, David first came to West Texas during the 80s, amid a terrible bust. He's since made his fortune, and, four decades later, he's weathered plenty of ups and downs in the patch. But negative oil was something that was hard for even David to imagine. Can, can you just kind of walk me through your day-to-day? Like, what were you doing as this was happening? Yeah, crazy day. So, you know, we started out, you know, the price of oil was going down. and I was getting ready to leave the house about 8.15. I started getting texts, you know, hey, price of oil is getting low and all that. Then I was on a, you know, a bunch of calls today, and I was on one long call. I think I wrote it down, the price of oil went from an hour and a half ten dollars and fifty cents to a dollar nineteen this morning just while i was having a phone call you know but it's just fifty thousand foot view is that you know we've just had demand destruction and we're making too much oil that's you know that's the that's the story whenever the price of oil makes national headlines you'll often see articles run photographs of an electronic sign in downtown midland the sign is right outside the chase building where david's office is at he owns the sign. Actually, he owns the whole block. Despite the misery being felt by Ullman on April 20th, David turned to humor with his sign. So I'm going to put you on speaker, but but I just changed the board. Let me take some pictures while we're talking. Um, Oh God, this is hilarious. So right now it says negative oil with the question mark. And then another one says, Houston, we have a problem. And then the other one says, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. And then uh, we'll trade oil for toilet paper. <laughs> At least you have a sense of humor about this. Well, you know, you, you don't really have a choice, uh, dude. You? you know what I mean? To understand how all of this came about, I turned to Bethany McLean. Hi, Bethany. Great to see you again, hear from you. Where are you coming from today? I am in Michigan. In Michigan, okay. Yep. And at home with your, your kids and your Doberman? I am at home with my kids and my Doberman, yep. I first spoke with Bethany for Episode 9 of Boomtown. While reporting her 2018 book, Saudi America, Bethany found that despite the record amount of oil being pumped out of the Permian Basin and elsewhere, many of the largest publicly traded fracking companies weren't actually making money. The shell boom, she said, was built on historically low interest rates and an influx of private equity after the Great Recession. But the business model of fracking was flawed. A year or so after a well is fracked, the amount of oil it produces begins to drop off much more quickly than a conventional well. To maintain their production levels, frackers have to constantly drill more wells. It's a treadmill of cash going into the ground with very little coming back to the investors. Bethany posited that this was a looming financial crisis, a disaster not just for the shell companies, but for large swaths of the economy that have depended on the shell boom. Now her dire predictions about fracking's debt bubble are coming true. Well, let's talk about what's happened over the last few weeks, really, I guess, over the last month in oil and gas. Are you tempted to say at this point, uh, I told you so? I mean, of course, there's a little part of I told you so at work because I do feel like the 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 shaky fundamentals of the fracking industry are part of what has led to where where we are today. But when you look at 
why the collapse came as quickly as it's come, and then the human cost in terms of people losing their jobs at probably the worst possible time in in history. Um, it's really hard to feel to feel any delight in that. And I think about this in a slightly broader perspective and that the rise of fracking is one of the reasons that we came out of the global financial crisis, not painlessly, oh my God, but perhaps less painfully than it would have been otherwise because fracking helped provide employment in a lot of places. And the fact that that avenue of, of employment is getting devastated right now is just one of many things that means this is going to be much worse than that was. Yeah. I mean, we're talking like 10 million oil and gas jobs in this country. And as we were talking about just a minute ago, something like 50,000 jobs shed already. And that's probably an underestimate, actually. Weatherford International uh, shed 6,000 jobs in a single day last week. Wow. So. Wow. That is just, that is staggering. And you think of the human cost of that. It is um, almost unbearable. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things uh, that have happened. Can you just talk a little bit about what happened with Saudi Arabia and, and Russia uh, on March 8th that kind of started this snowball downhill? Right. So I think the snowball was already rolling downhill because, as we've talked about, investors had gotten really fed up with fracking's inability to produce free cash flow. And you can look at the amounts that fracking companies were able to raise in the equity markets. Um, there are all sorts of measures of this. You can look at the performance of publicly traded fracking stocks, and you can see that investors were saying, we don't want anything more to do with this until you can prove that you can, you can make money. So, so the trend was already in place. But then to have these two events hit at once, one being the total demand destruction as a result of coronavirus. And it's obvious, but it hadn't really occurred to me that in most cases, if the if price is collapsing, you've got a little bit of elasticity and that people will start driving more and using using more gasoline. And now you've got exactly the opposite happening because of coronavirus. So the obvious responses to cheaper oil have not kicked in. So that's one huge factor. And then, of course, on um, March 8th, you had Saudi Arabia and Russia, the worst possible moment, play this game of chicken where they both emerged losers. Um, because they both refused to cut to cut production. Um, and, you know, the deal that President Trump helped negotiate recently, I mean, it blunts the edges of that, but it but it doesn't do much at this point. We're I believe the last estimate I saw was we're overproducing by about 30 million barrels a day. Their plan to curb production amounts to about 15 million barrels. Um, so we're we're still oversupplying twice the amount that they've promised to curtail. And in the meantime, uh, we've had hearings on proration. Uh, the Texas Railroad Commission, our state agency that regulates oil and gas, despite its name, um, yes. they, they had a hearing last week to discuss whether or not they would begin prorating in the state, making producers curb their production to a certain level which they did from the 1930s until 1973. Um, right. And then just yesterday, uh, after you know they heard arguments last week uh, on those who are for and against or neutral on the position and pretty passionate uh, arguments made on both sides. And as of yesterday, they've announced that they are going to defer making a decision. 
So in the meantime, we still have all of this oil coming on to the market with no place to go, which leads us to what happened on this past Monday, April 20th. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about that from your perspective, what you saw that day? Sure. Well, you had the price of futures um, go sharply negative. And part of that was simply exactly as you just mentioned, the storage issue, because people got so afraid of being stuck with the physical delivery of oil in May that they said, I'll pay somebody else to take physical delivery of this stuff because there's nowhere to put it because storage capacity is full. And so and going to be even more full if we continue to overproduce at, at the rate at the rate we're going. So people would rather actually pay pay somebody else to take take oil when it's time to take physical delivery than risk having to take it and not having any place to put it. Um, so it's you have never seen this before in history. I mean, there are many things that are happening right now that have never happened before in history, but you can't um, overstate the magnitude of the craziness in the oil market. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. So what happened on April 20th, this historic price collapse, that was partially due to the fact that uh, the May future contract was expiring. Yep. Um, and so what what did that mean to investors that kind of triggered just this historic drop in oil to, to go negative? That meant that you had to get out of that contract if you didn't want it. So you had to either, uh, you had to sell it, you had to get rid of it, or you had to face the risk that when it came time for the expiry of that contract, that you wouldn't be able to get out of it. And if you couldn't get out of it, then you'd have to take physical delivery of oil. So people started to panic looking at storage and realizing that it was full and that storage was going to cost them a great deal of money. And they got scared about being in a position in May where they would have to take, might have to take physical delivery of oil because they wouldn't be able to roll the contract over at that point. So there was panic selling. So we're talking about these basically traders in, in New York or wherever they are staring down uh, the fact that they could literally have to take these barrels of crude oil. And typically they'd have no problem offloading this to Cushing, Oklahoma or some other commercial storage facility. But right. now these places are filling up. Um and even the, the pipelines to the refineries are, are filling up. And we have tankers out on the ocean right now just going, making figure eights while they wait for a place to unload their crude. It's just 
stunning. And typically it's, it's interesting too, because we've thought of for, for a long time, for so long, the, the physical training, physical oil has been almost disassociated, detached from, um, from the financial instrument that oil has become. Right. So a lot of people who trade oil as a financial instrument, don't even think about it in physical terms anymore because you could always just roll the contract, right? Find somebody else to find somebody else to sell it to. Maybe you'd take a loss, but, 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 but it was a financial instrument. And now all of a sudden you're staring down the, the, barrel of this thing you thought of, of, of as a financial um, um, instrument becoming actually this physical, a physical thing. And I find that, um, I find the way in which those two things became disassociated and the way in which our current time there, they're, the physical and the financial are being linked back together again is really interesting. For a while, OPEC plus has been curtailing their production to keep prices stable. And, and in the meantime, we had U.S. shale producing more oil than we ever have before. And while Russia and OPEC were curtailing their production to, to keep prices not great but stable in the $55, $60 range, uh, American oil, now that it's being exported, is starting to eat up that market share. And so when Saudi Arabia comes in and asks Russia to curb another 2 million barrels because of the pandemic and the, and the economic slowdown happening around the world, Russia basically says, we're not going to do that. And in fact, right. the opposite happens. Yeah, yeah. In a weird way, it's a, it's a global game of chicken, right? And you can see it as a personality play um, between these two, these two powers. But there's a more complicated dynamic going on, um, which is that both Saudi Arabia at least understands that oil's future is not infinite, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have been trying to transition their economy away from one that is completely dependent on oil into one that that is not. And right now, you cannot, again, you can't overstate how dependent Saudi Arabia's um, economy is is on oil. That's where most of the government's, the kingdom's revenues come from. And it is social stability. In fact, the um, break-even price, the fiscal break-even price is around $80 a barrel, meaning that if Saudi Arabia isn't getting $80 a barrel, they're not able to ba balance their budget. And they're not able to um, spend the money that has kept the peace um, in the kingdom for all these decades, if not longer. So they've been playing this game where they've been, not game, but trying to balance these two competing principles, which is knowing that oil isn't going to last forever. And yet trying to, and trying to get as much money from the sale of a barrel of oil as, as you can today. I think what happened, um, although people have always cautioned me against ever thinking that you can know what went on <laughs> in the minds of, of, of the kingdom, because you, you, you don't know as an outsider and, and, and an American, but you can see that what happened could have been, this is going to hell in a handbasket and we better get as much money as we can right now, because if this is never coming back, then what's the point in trying not to pump. If we're just going to get less and less and less per barrel of oil, you might as well pump all you can right now um, before it's gone, right? Yeah. So that was always the trade-off they were making is that they could hold off that day of reckoning. And once that day came where they saw that they were just going to get less and less and less for a barrel of oil, they were always going to say, well, we're just going to pump now because what's the point, right? So this is layered into this is the future of oil, right? That's part of what happened here. Yeah, because on the other side of this, I mean, we have to imagine that demand will come back 
to pre-COVID levels, maybe eventually that may take a couple of years. I've seen some estimates saying we're not going to see um, the same fuel consumption until 2022. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of people saying, well, right now is a great time to invest in renewables. And But even at that, there will still be demand for jet fuel, gasoline, uh, natural gas, these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in the meantime, Saudi Arabia can maybe fight back some of that market share that they've lost previously to America in the last few years. And so I think I, I'm not sure that what happened was so much about crushing American shale as it was about Saudi Arabia trying to operate in its own best interest. Because if you do, the, the, the widespread belief has always been once we see the, the dawning of the age of renewables, the price of oil goes into decline. It may bounce up and down over time, but it's going to go into a long-term secular decline, right? Saudi Arabia has to get what money it can before before that happens. And if you believe that COVID-19 is, that the demand for oil isn't going to come back for a few years, then you're making, if you're not going to pump today, you're making a gamble that by the time that demand comes back, renew, the dawn of the age of renewables still isn't going to be here. And I don't know that anybody has a clear answer on that, but, but, but that's a gamble, right? Fair enough. I, I know it's very unwise to make predictions, but what do you foresee um, for the shell industry on the other side of this? So before I say anything, I'm just going to offer a caveat I've offered before, which is that the one thing I learned in the history while I was researching my book is that the history of um, making predictions about whether the oil industry is basically littered with everybody got it wrong, right? So um, I, I don't know. The industry has come back before, not not from this. I think some part of it depends on what the government ends up doing and if there is federal aid for shale companies. But I think in large part, it depends on the dynamics that were already at play before all of this happened. How much of the really good oil producing regions does the U.S. have left? What's left in the sweet spots and what's the real break-even cost? And those have always been the questions, right? And can new technology um, lower that break-even cost to a point where it makes sense to get oil from the non-sweet spots. And I don't know the answer to those questions. I've become more and more skeptical of it over the last couple of years because a lot of the technological innovations that were touted um, that were miraculously going to lower the, the break-even price of shale to the point where the industry was going to make money didn't prove to be true. Yeah, and I think the key word is cheap oil, you know, because, yeah, there's a, millions of barrels left in the Permian, but it's very expensive to get to. Um, and as you've spoken about in your, in your book and in your recent, uh, op-ed for the New York times, you're skeptical that that private equity, the money that has been poured into these shell companies previously to access that oil is not going to be there this time around. They've kind of learned their lesson. They've been burnt once or twice now. And that's the the key difference. It, It is, I think, although, 
interest rates aren't going higher anytime soon, right? Cheap debt has fueled financial insanity in the past, and it could um, fuel financial insanity in the future. So it's we're we're just in uncharted territory all all over the place. Um, I think investors have been burned enough by fracking at this point that it would be difficult to imagine it coming back in the absence of some kind of technological breakthrough that really transforms the the, the break even costs. But as I said, just never um, underestimate the craziness that that can ensue when when money is basically free, right? Sure. Yeah, and. There, we do have the government wildcard here, which you've alluded to. Um, but even if you filled up the strategic petroleum reserve, it, it barely moves the needle on this thing. So it seems like there's only so much uh, the government can do at this point as well. Yeah, and I would think that there would be a lot of rage if there is um, a really whole-scale bailout of the fracking industry, um, given where the money where the money has gone in in the past. In the sense that you've had a lot of executives and a lot of um, private equity honchos make a lot of money from this, and the underlying business hasn't made money and has arguably been environmentally quite destructive. Although that that said, let me offer a caveat here because you have had a lot of landowners make make a lot of money too. So it's not like this has been this has been a one-sided extraction, right? It's been a little bit more it's been a little more complicated than that. But I I think a whole scale bailout of of the industry is um, politically quite fraught. But you can hear some of the I found Scott Sheffield's commentary on this, the CEO of Pioneer, his commentary on this quite interesting because he said a couple of things that are almost at odds with each other when he's in his public comments on this. And one was when he basically admitted in an interview, I think it was on CNBC or Bloomberg, that the industry has done nothing but destroy capital. Uh, but then he also said in another interview that if Trump didn't bail the industry out, he was going to lose the energy states when it came time for the election in the fall. So that's another wild card that gets thrown in here. You know, there's nothing like a crisis to turn a good capitalist into a socialist. Um, but of, of course, the other component here, which we've touched on, is is the renewables overlay. And so maybe if there's any kind of silver lining to come out of this, maybe it will yank us into the world, the world as it's going rather than the world as it's, as it was. I love that. And that's probably a perfect um, note to end on because you finally found the silver lining, which has been very, very tough <laughs> for me trying. to do. Um, I'm trying. No. I mean, it's 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 really hard, and I don't want to minimize the the pain that this is going to cause to people. I think it's just, I think as I mentioned on Boomtown before, I grew up in a mining town where I saw how the fabric of the town changed as it went from a place where people could make a really good living working as a miner, um, and the mines were a stable source of employment, multi generational employment, right? And I watched how that changed and how the fabric of the place fell apart over the ensuing decades. And so there's nothing that is pretty uh, about these about these kind of transitions or about these moments in history where it all comes crashing down and falls apart. Um, it's incredibly ugly to the people whose livelihood it is. Yeah. And that's, that's where my heart hurts, you know, the worst right. for, for those folks. And, um, you know, like a mining town too, uh, there's a certain like culture um, to, to the, to the industry. And I, I'd be lying to say that I didn't like some of that just tenacious, tough, let's roll up our sleeves and, and get after it type of work ethic. And 
it's something I admire greatly. And um, I know it's a, a, a big visual change, but maybe some of that same culture and work ethic could be applied towards wind turbines and solar panels. And I mean, it's, it we'll, we'll have to see. Um, right. I, I agree with you. It's a certain, it's a grit and an ability to go do physical work and it's a culture and it's continuity between father and son, usually, mm-hmm. particularly at least in the Minnesota iron range and probably in the Permian, Permian basin as well. But it also provides um, a type of equality that is missing in today's society when you have families who can make really good wages and have a really good middle class income from that kind of gritty, hard, hard, hardcore job. I, I think you've, you've got a better society than one where, where people can't earn a living, obviously. And that's a change that just I, I have trouble seeing how it's good in that sense. Perhaps the most crushing blow of the price collapse has been to the workers. While industries across the world are feeling the crunch from COVID-19, the oil field has been absolutely crushed. Since the beginning of last year, the oil field services sector has dropped some 50,000 jobs, about 13% of its workforce. Weatherford International, a Houston-based oil company, announced on April 16th that it was shedding 6,000 jobs. Many oil companies have slashed their budgets by half and said they'd rein in their work in the Permian Basin. Fracking is set to face its worst year ever, and by July 1st, at least half of all fracking projects are expected to end. The domino effect across a wide range of companies will be far-reaching. Many of those I've talked to in the patch have taken steep pay cuts, and just about everyone knows someone who's been laid off. Pake Rossi, my buddy who works on a frat crew and wrote the theme song for Boomtown, recently completed a two-week hitch in the patch. He stayed in a man camp in Pecos and another in Midland, an eerie place to call home during a pandemic. But he was grateful to still have the work. Then the price went negative on April 20th. I caught up with him two days later. Oh, man, it's kind of hard to think about where to start because we've been talking for the last uh few weeks, you know, um, you've been keeping me updated on how things are going for you and in your part of the patch and what you're seeing. And let's just kind of start with early March. How, how were things before, like everything just kind of went to shit? Man, things were good. My, my company hired like three or four new people. And on March 4th, I got a $2 raise and a promotion. So things were going good. We were busy. I started going out and doing jobs on my own. Yeah, we were rolling and going, looking forward to a busy year. And that was March 4th. And then 23 days later, we did a 15% pay cut company-wide. So I went from a $2 raise to a $3 pay cut. And then uh, two days ago, they did a 90% layoff. Yeah. So within 42 days, we went from hiring people and giving raises to letting everybody. Wow. The trajectory changed harder than you could really imagine. Yeah. It's crazy. And it was, it's just like, it seems like a comedy of errors or just or something, you know, because not that the Corona thing caused anything, but it definitely didn't help. You know, it's just like, one thing right on top of the other. 
happen real quick. So yeah. tell me what it was like being out in the patch while a pandemic is spreading. Uh, you're in a man camp and outside of Pecos and also in out in Midland. What were those weeks kind of like? For the most part, it was like while you're working, it's just normal. Yeah, they weren't really precautious other than t- saying stuff like, uh, if you feel sick, I don't care what it is. If you feel sick, call your manager, get relief. We don't want to compromise uh, the operation, right? So that was out in the field. That was kind of the idea. It was just business as normal. Um, but then it would be weird, like calling home. And it's like, oh, yeah, Jesse and the boys have been in the house for three weeks and they haven't gone anywhere and, and then trying to get food and that kind of stuff it's everything would be shut down but it wasn't really i wasn't really noticing a slowdown as far as traffic or that kind of thing not yet not not in march not in early march and so in the meantime you've just kind of been working as normal your 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 two week hitch one week off that's what i had been doing from march to now and then this past week, they called me and said, you go ahead and stay at the house for a few days and we'll give you a call and give you an update on what's going on. But right now there's no work, so just stay at the house. They sent out an email saying, you know, we're going to try to keep everybody working. We're, in, we're talking to our customers. We're trying to keep everybody going. So just hang tight while we're doing that. So that was this past week. And then they called me Monday. April 20th, the... April 20th. The doomsday of, of oil and gas. <laughs> so that's going to be an easy day to remember. Yeah, it will be. I thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or 2020, 2020, I was eating breakfast with my family and uh, uh, I got a phone call from the office. And it was head of operations and head of sales. So they seemed emotional, you know, they... A lot of people are upset about it and trying to make them out to be bad guys, but there was nothing they could have done. You know, I mean, and really they just said that they were going to have to let me go and they were doing layoffs. And though I asked them like, what kind of layoff are we talking about? We're talking about six or eight guys and I just didn't make the cut or are we talking about company wide? And the head of sales said, we're looking at about a 90% layoff. Walk me through the rest of your Monday. After you got that phone call, you were at breakfast. What what does the rest of the day look like? Well, I went in. The boys had already done were already done eating, uh, so I sat down with Jesse and I told her what had happened. And you know, I had already been home a week longer than I was supposed to, so neither one of us were shocked, and appalled, or surprised. You know, and then I went inside and I got dressed and I. Uh, Went and talked to my father-in-law and see if he had any. He used to work at GM in in Detroit, and so he'd been through layoffs and that kind of stuff, you know, and just talked about side jobs, cash jobs, that kind of stuff on the side. Uh, And, yeah, that was about it. Signed up for unemployment. That was my Monday. Um, So Tuesday morning, you get up and – you head to West Texas. Uh, just kind of walk me through yesterday a little bit more. All right. So I got up at 4.45, got dressed, hit the road. I got there right at break time. It was 10. And so the guys that they had kept were taking a break. And I could tell that they felt awkward because nobody said hello to me. 
But uh, I uh, went and talked to my boss and it was like, I mean, they kept six guys, you know? And so it's like, I think they said they ended up letting go 34 people. And the dude was like almost in tears. It's just, you know, he, he said, he told me, I never thought that it would ever get this bad, which I don't know if it, anyone ever did. I don't know if it ever has or ever will be that bad, you know, that's, that's insane. So, uh, I went in, signed a piece of paper, uh, went out and got all my stuff out of the truck, went through a checklist of everything that there was, that was theirs. So I had all my uniforms, uh, thank goodness. Cause they were charging like a hundred bucks pop and basically just left everything else in the truck, left it as it was. I started to clean up a little bit like the, the bed and uh, my the shop supervisor came up and he was like, dude, don't clean that truck. They just let you go. Screw them. Go home. So that's what I did. They So when they laid me off, they, they did the whole thing of we're only doing this so the company will survive. And as soon as things get back to normal, we're going to hire back the same guys. Uh and I'm not sure if I want to go back, but Jesse and I are still talking about it. Um, but I don't know. I guess it's it's made more complicated by the fact that the world is so weird right now. I mean, we're talking on Zoom because yeah, of no. quarantine. Um, but do you see it as like an opportunity to to try something else, or what do you? Uh, yeah, I I do because that was definitely. <laughs> It feels uncomfortable saying this, or I definitely was not raised this way, but I'm on unemployment and it's there. So I might as well suckle that government teat while I got it and, uh, and use it as an opportunity to kind of just figure out maybe what, you know, I can wait it out and see what happens with the whole COVID-19 thing. And then also in the meantime, I can be working on my music as much as I can and then on what else would I do besides oil filled? Yeah. Well, you've got a new album coming out on May 1st, right? May 1st on, on the interwebs. It is called Lord above devil below. Cool. It's my fourth album. Sweet. Dude. Um, I, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, all our love to Jesse and the boys and, um, yeah, stay safe and stay sane and, talk to you on the other side of this yeah man it's one breath at a time it's all we can do i've been rolling hankering hoping staggering south stammering and smoking got a lot of love tied up in my heart but it does no good when i'm driving through the dark she says bring it home to me Bishop in my rear view, the valley brought tears My wheels started winding, grinding them gears Sitting on the shoulder, the moon coming up Crossing my fingers, praying for some luck Get me to a better scene Boomtown is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Texas Monthly Executive producer is Jason Hoke Produced and engineered by Brian Standifer Who also wrote the score Boomtown is edited by J.K. Nickel and Megan Kreit and co-reported by Leif Riegstad. The outro song today was Breaking Down by Pake Rossi. I'm your host and writer, Christian Wallace. 
Texas Monthly's parent company also owns interest in the midstream oil and gas industry, among other diversified investments. Our editorial judgments are made independently of any such investments. Don't forget to tell your friends about Boomtown and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Follow us on social media and visit texasmonthly.com boomtown for more on the story. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.